Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm Meg Steenberg, a 3L at Syracuse University College of Law JDI program. Today, we are honored to have with us Major General John Altenberg. General Altenberg, retired Army, served for 28 years as a lawyer in the U.S. Army. He represented the Army before Congress, state and local governments, and in court in the United States and Germany. As Deputy Judge Advocate General for the Department of the Army from 1997 to 2001, He advised senior military and civilian leaders on critical legal and policy issues. He also directed the day-to-day operations of approximately 1,800 civilian and uniformed attorneys in 70 offices, as well as 3,000 National Guard and Army Reserve attorneys worldwide. Presently, General Altenberg is of counsel at Greenberg Trorag in Washington, D.C., where he focuses his practice on corporate governance and sensitive internal investigations in the defense, homeland security sector, and the multilateral development bank sector. General Altenberg also represents individuals and corporations in matters requiring access to top secret, sensitive compartmented information, such as matters before the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency and the Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals. He represents senior government officials and corporate executives in executive branch and congressional investigations and hearings. General Altenberg is also a professorial lecturer in national security law at George Washington. General Altenberg received his JD from the University of Cincinnati College of Law after serving as an enlisted soldier in South Vietnam. General, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you here. Thanks, Megan. My pleasure to be here. Let's start with the very basics. What is the role of a lawyer in the United States military? Well, it's, a, it's the same role that it plays in the civilian sector. And, and that leads me to, to knock out of the way uh, in the first place the distinction between the two. There isn't much. It's really, there are different functions in the civilian sector, different areas, I mean, in the civilian sector where lawyers practice in, they practice in the corporate area, they practice in the academic area, general counsel to universities, uh, they, they practice in the private sector. Uh, and, and so in each of those cases, you need to know your client, you need to know the, the culture that the client is operating in. And, and so the military is just another, another facet of that. Uh, in the military, we practice all areas of law. We practice claims, litigation, environmental law, contract law, uh, labor and personnel law. And each of those areas, you know, has a unique military twist to it, but it's essentially the same, the same law that's practiced in the, in the civilian sector. And so, uh, we, you know, uh, they used to kid in the 60s and 70s, say, well, now that you've now that you've been in the JAG Corps, you know, are you going to go to law school? I mean, people didn't even know that they were lawyers. You know, they didn't know that you go to law school and if you go in the Army in the JAG Corps, you know, you, you're not allowed to even report even if you're accepted until you've passed the bar exam. So some guys would, would and gals would would not pass the bar exam and they'd have, they'd have to wait. They couldn't report to, to duty, you know, even though they'd been accepted by the JAG Corps. The JAG Corps said, don't, don't comply with these orders unless you get a good bar result. And so, uh, so you have to graduate from law school, you have to pass a bar, and then you're eligible to be accepted in the JAG Corps. So everybody comes in uh, certified and, and having passed the bar in at least one state, and that's a start point. And then to get that 
that unique aspect that I mentioned, uh, they go to the JAG basic course. And the JAG basic course is eight weeks academically after about five weeks of learning how to be a soldier and, and getting that part of it. Uh, it's eight weeks in Charlottesville, Virginia at the JAG school, which is on the same location with the, the uh, University of Virginia Law School and the University of Virginia Graduate Business School, the Darden School. And uh, it's eight weeks of kind of learning, well, what's unique about criminal law and criminal law prosecution and defense in the military? How is it different from the civilian sector? And what's unique about regulatory law, what we call administrative law? Uh, and what's the, what's the military twist on that? In what context in the military do you need to practice administrative law? And then there'll be international law and operational law. And that, of course, includes the law of warfare and, and the rules of engagement and that type of thing and advice to commanders in combat. And uh, and so you get you get the, the military aspect of that. And of course, each of the military services is different because in the in the Air Force, they have a different set of issues than they do in the Navy. And in the Army, it's it's yet another complete set, set of, of, of circumstances that's different in terms of what, what the issues are like. It's the same Geneva Conventions, for example, but there are other factors that apply. And so each service is quite different, especially in the operational law arena, because Navy lawyers have to learn the law of the sea, and Air Force officers now are learning space law and, and, and other aspects of, of what's going on out there. So the, the military, when it gets to some of these unique areas, is, is really different. Then it is then it really is different from the civilian sector. But uh, but before that, not so much so. And uh, and then there's there's contract law, which is just government contracts law. I mean, the, in my law firm, we have a government contract suite with uh, probably 15 attorneys who've been practicing government contracts their entire life because that's a big part of business. And uh, they've not been in the military, most of them, but they are government contracts lawyers and they make careers out of that. Well, in the JAG Corps, we have to learn something about government contracts so that we can advise commanders and other clients in the military. And so we get the military unique aspects of government contracts law. So uh, that was a mouthful, but, uh, but uh, the, the, we got it started anyway. Absolutely. And, and how does that roll? Is it then a further microcosm of all of that if there's war or conflict and then there's there's there are um, more guidelines and regulations within that or are you prepared in all of that to just transfer that into a conflict situation some of it you're prepared to do it and I would say if people would ask me well when I would tell them well when uh, when when a when a division of 17 or 18 thousand soldiers deploys, for uh, a combat theater like Desert Storm or in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, why do you take lawyers with you? What are the lawyers doing? Well, first of all, there's lawyers that are practicing legal assistance, which is one of the functions in the military law arena, where you're providing advice on wills and, and advice on uh, landlord tenant issues and debtor creditor issues. And somebody said, well, why are you doing that in Afghanistan? Well, because that poor soldier is worried about her husband who's back in the United States, who's all at once got an issue with the, with the lease. And that soldier's not going to be as productive or is going to be distracted if she's got a legal issue back in the States because her husband can't handle the landlord or because the husband's got a debtor creditor issue or because the husband's got a court summons there or they got child care issues. And there's legal aspects to that. So there's legal assistance lawyers wherever there are soldiers, even when they're in combat. They take legal assistance lawyers to combat with them to provide advice and counsel to the troops. Troops do bad things, you know. Uh, hopefully, you know, 
but hopefully not terrible every time, but guys commit and gals commit crimes in these areas, whether they're in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever they are. So good people do bad things sometimes. And so they need a defense lawyer and the government needs a prosecutor. And so there's a certain amount of that that goes on. I, I'd say for sure, not as much as there would be in a, in a garrison environment or back in the States, because quite frankly, once you get to a combat zone, you're too busy to do bad things. You know, there's just too much going on. But but then there's 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 layback times where people stand down and there's there's not as much going on activity uh, in in the combat area and that's when people get in trouble they start doing dumb things but again, again there's this infrastructure that has to take care of that this legal infrastructure that provides prosecutors and defense lawyers and victim assistance attorneys and paralegals and all of that to to kind of run the system uh, and there's administrative law to be done and there's, there's issues with foreign governments and what can you accept here? And and when you're getting ready to deploy, do you have to all at once race up the street to some little village and buy stuff because people need it or because it's colder than you thought it would be? Can we buy some heaters for the troops, you know, for the tents? I mean, it's all, a myriad of things that happen that gets into government contracting and, and all the rest of it. And when you're out there in the middle of the desert and you're shooting mortars and you accidentally kill somebody's camel, then you've got a, a claim filed and and attorneys have to work the claims issue and decide how much how much is a is a camel worth, you know, and, and so and the government has to pay the claims, that type of thing. So every single legal issue you can think of, actually, life goes on, even in combat theaters and things keep happening. And so lawyers are there to do all those things. As a JAG Corps leader, you helped transform the practice of law in the Army. You insisted lawyers immerse themselves to become more effective advocates. How did your service as an enlisted soldier helped guide you as a lawyer? Well, first of all, it gave me an understanding of the Army a little bit. And I, I, I can't say it gave me a lot as an enlisted soldier because I just did it for two years. And um, you're, you're kind of at the bottom of the stack when you're an enlisted soldier. And so, I mean, I just did my job every day. I paid attention to what was going on. And I thought it was a big deal when I saw a major one day. You know, like, oh, my God, I saw a major. Um, and, and you just you, you've, you've got your own view of the world and you just got to go hour by hour and get your job done every day, whether it's driving a truck or whether it's, you know, um, flying in an airplane with somebody else's piloting and you're, you're trying to search for stuff on the ground to see. And, you know, I was an aerial observer for a while in Vietnam. So those so everybody's got their job to do. All right. Um, but what what we did and and were several officers involved in this over the years too even back in the 60s some were more inclined to do this than others but was emphasize the importance of immersing in the culture so that you you understood what made people tick you understood what made them think you understood what their values were better i think it's the same on the civilian side quite frankly uh, now, not all lawyers agree with this. Lawyers want to be lawyers, and that's all, and they just they don't care about the other aspect. But, but I would think if I were a public defender in a certain city, the more I knew about the city, the more I knew about the government, the more I knew about what problems there are in the city and what, what factors are affecting the city sociologically and economically, the better I could represent clients, I think, even as a public defender. If I'm in a corporation, 
the more I know about, you know, the, the corporate uh, values and, and, the, and, the, and the goals of the CEO and the board of governors, the board of directors, you know, the more I'm likely to spot a legal issue I might not spot otherwise. And so I think good lawyers always immerse themselves in the culture of their client. I hear all the times clients talk about what they really like about certain law firms or certain lawyers is they understood what is important to me. They learned my job. They weren't just practicing law in a vacuum. And so um, we, we brought that to the military. We being a whole bunch of people, I just happen to be one that, that, that espoused that, that view. And so uh, immersing oneself in the culture made it possible for you as if you were defending a client in court in a, in a, in a, in a criminal prosecution, you know, you might think of a question to ask a witness you wouldn't think of otherwise if you were just a lawyer who's coming in from the outside as a defense lawyer. But being a part of that culture, you might ask the incisive question that ended up being a, you know, a basis for an acquittal. And the same with you're on the other side and a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, of course, and you're you're making a sentencing argument or a findings argument to the court members, to what you call juries, we call juries in the civilian sector. You know, you, you might you might think of some things to argue that are more persuasive simply because you understand the culture better. So I think the immersion in culture is is really important, but I think it's important in all areas of law and, and not just in the military. But you, you can see where the military is unique. And so it's uh, it's it's even more significant there, I think, because it's a, it's a completely different world coming from the civilian sector to the military sector. How do you stay true to the rule of law? in the chaos of war. And the, the example I think about is, is um, you know, with Department of Justice guidance regarding torture after 9-11. And it seems as though just staying true to the rule of law, even though there are so many unknowns, even though there are, you know, in, in, in that sense, 3,000 plus individuals killed on our soil, where do you turn to? How do you how do you sort of restrain yourself? I think the first answer to your question it's a it's a great question and it's it's very broad. But I would I would bring it right back to training. That's the first thing that the military does and does very well in all areas. But it's especially important when you're preparing to go to combat and it's training. So. And training involves, you know, not only your superiors and your technical experts, whether they're sergeants or machine gunners or the person that knows how to fire the tank gun the best or whatever it is, all those different expert areas in the military, the key is training and, and retraining. And, 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 and that applies also to what you can't do and what you shouldn't do in terms of the context of the law of war. And so um, there's required training in the law of war. Every person in the in the army, anyway, if not all the services, has to have one hour of law of war training every year. That can be pretty darn boring, and and that can be, you know, you know, there's training and there's training. There's training where, yeah, we did that. We checked the block. You know, uh, the computer says I looked at the screen for an hour. You know, or, or whatever. There's all kinds of training, and then there's realistic, hardcore training where you're immersed in what you're doing, and and you can see that just in how. Um, um, not the internet, but the, but 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 information technology has changed training over the last twenty years, and some of it is, you know, you're you're required to do it. It could be in a school setting, or it could be in a in a corporate setting, where you've got to do an hour of this, that, or the other, and it's information technology that does it for you. And some of it's just junk, 
and you don't really know anything. And, and other types have been designed really well. And, and the person that's doing the leading of it on the, on the screen is really effective. And they've got ways to, to use, uh, uh, you know, graphics and the like to make it live for you better and make it make a more of an impression on you. And it's all about the pedagogy and whether it's effective or not. It's not all the same, obviously. But, but the training piece is really important. And so when an organization goes somewhere, and I'll just, I'll use an example going to Somalia in the early 90s. It would have been in, uh, in, a, in December of 92. Uh, an organization was sent to Somalia to safeguard the delivery of humanitarian goods to the people that were, they, had, they were having a, a uh, I'm, I'm losing words here that are pretty simple, but anyway, they, there was no food. They, they couldn't grow anything for a while there. And, and so um, a lawyer went with the advance party over there and they had, they had been doing what we call lane training. Not only do you talk about the Geneva Conventions and listen to the words and what your obligations are, you know, uh, you also do what we call in the army lane training, where you have a group of soldiers and you, and they're in a in a real life scenario where they're approaching a road junction on their home post, and then different things happen. You have different actors out there to to take different actions. Okay, now what do you do when this happens? And can you shoot that person, or do you have to shoot that person, or whatever? And we call that lane training, and and you go through that time and time again, so that you you, you know that if if X happens. These are your choices. These are what you can do. And if Y happens, you know, you got you to stand down. You know, if somebody's shooting at you, shoot back. I mean, that's easy. Okay. You can always defend yourself. And, and so they, but we put them in as many situations as possible so that they've, they've been through it already. They've trained themselves. They, they've not trained themselves. They've been trained to react a certain way. And so the same thing with regard to this fellow goes over that I know went over to Somalia as part of the advance party. And he was a senior lawyer from the post, but they ended up having him go over there with the advance party. And he got over there and realized, holy cow, this is completely different. The roads are different. What we confront is different. And so he phones back to his home post and says, we got to change the, we got to change the lane training because it's different over here. And so he gives them the information they need to alter the training scenarios and they, they revamped entirely the lane training for these soldiers who were going to deploy to Somalia and what they were going to face over there in terms of trying to safeguard the humanitarian deliveries. So, so, so lane training is important and all kinds of other training is important so that people are programmed to react the way they're supposed to in combat. Okay. Uh, there's a hostile force. Okay. If there's not a, if you don't know who's who, if they're not wearing uniforms, if it's some of these, these, these tougher, you know, uh, uh, synthetic uh, areas where you're not really sure who's who, like in Afghanistan, then, then the issue becomes hostile intent. Well, what's hostile intent? Okay. I mean, is somebody just raising their rifle and pointing it at you? Is that hostile intent? Can you shoot them? And so that, that's, that's where the training comes in, and that's where we're, we're teaching people to do right. Quite frankly, the, the war crimes are, are so obvious, it's clear that somebody violated you know, the standards. And, and, and so if, if some guy stops a vehicle and walks out in the middle of the desert with a, with a prisoner and comes back alone, dragging the guy's body, you know, he probably committed a war crime. It's not likely that person was able to, he was handcuffed when he went out there. It's not likely he was able to exhibit hostile intent. And, and so, I mean, it's, uh, in, in combat, it's, it's, it, it's not that hard to discern, let me put it that way, especially once you've had the training. 
How difficult is it if you add in an element of the enemies not following the rule of law? And now you've got to you've got to work against that. I'd, I'd say it's easy. We ignore that. A huge component of the training is we're going to comply with the law of war with Geneva Conventions, no matter what the enemy does. You know, now we've had individuals not do that. OK, we've had individuals commit war crimes and be prosecuted for it. Um, but but it, it's. It's it's very clear in how we train our people that that's not an issue for us. We're never going to go they, because they violate the law of war. We're going to violate the law. Of war. We're, we'd never do that. And it's 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 uh, I would say it's harped on. I mean, it's it's a big deal. It's, it's very clear by our standards that that's how we're going to operate. And the lawyers play a part of that. The Department of Defense law war training program requires that a lawyer be involved in all law war training. Now uh, you can have somebody else there also. And I mean, I can, I can, I can relate to you in a, a, an admission in a way, an amusing uh, tidbit. When we were preparing to go to war in Desert Storm, we had a three-person team of lawyers visit each battalion in the theater and talked of a battalion between 500 and 800 soldiers at a time on their responsibility under the Geneva Conventions in the law of war. It was a it was a very effective, I think, dynamic program. And not all the lawyers were even certified to be allowed to do that. We only had eight out of 22 lawyers that we certified. These are the eight people that are going to conduct all the law of war training and rules of engagement training. So each battalion got this training and each battalion got it from three lawyers who rotated so they could so they wouldn't be reading notes rotated so that one guy forgot something, the other one would pick it up. And so it was, you know, we think a very effective program. We get out to the desert, and we're in the assembly areas getting prepared for combat. And, and uh, I walked up to somebody that I knew who'd been an operations officer in one of, the, one of the battalions. I said, you know, we did all this training. You guys didn't. You guys deployed early, and, and you never did the law of war training. Oh, he said, that's all right, sir. He says, I took care of it. I said, really, how'd you take care of it? He says, I conducted the training myself. This is a very sharp officer, by the way. I mean, a very sharp officer. And I had no doubt that he had conducted training for his battalion because he knew it was important. And he probably conducted law of war training for his battalion of, of 800 some soldiers, okay, as, as the operations officer. I said, did you know that the Department of Defense regulation required that you have a lawyer with you when you do the training, if you're going to do it? <gasps> it shocked him. And he was like, I mean, he's a very sharp officer, very, very professional officer. I mean, I, you know, he's a retired three-star general who's a commenter on CNN. I'll tell you that. Okay. He's very sharp officer. Okay. And he's a major when I'm having this conversation with him in 1991. Okay. And he was aghast that he had screwed that up and that he had not used a lawyer to do the training. He was so confident and so competent that he figured, well, I can do this. And he did it because they had to go early. And I told him, don't worry about it. And we went out to each of his little organizations. They're already out in the field. We can only get a troop at a time, like 100, 200 people. And we took the three lawyers out and we did it for each troop out there, even before we started the combat in late, in late when it was late February of 91. But that I use that as an example because some people even forget that it requires if you can have the commander do it or or an operations person do it, but it, you gotta have you have to have a lawyer. That's mandatory, and and good. And it says something about our system, I think, that that officer was really uh, dismayed 
that he had missed that. And, and of course, please, we could remedy it right away within two days. But, you know, holy cow, as sharp as he is and as, as dynamic as he was, he missed the fact that you've got to have a lawyer there, at least at least to check the block correctly. You have to have it. I'm not sure that what we did made those guys any smarter about the law of war, but it sure made that major feel better that he had complied with the regulations. But 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 it's the regulations and the training that ensure that we comply with the law of war. Uh, and and that that's what's hard. That's that's hard for other people to know. I would tell you, there's a lot of lawyers that don't realize lawyers in the army, in the military, they do not realize why we have a general order that says nobody can take their own weapon with them. Did you know that? No. Nobody's allowed to take a privately owned weapon. You could have, you know, uh, an you could you could have a, a 45 caliber pistol at home. You could have a nine millimeter that's identical to the nine millimeter that's issued to the people in the military and you've got your own at home, you're not allowed to take that with you. You're not allowed to take your own ammunition. And people say, well, well why not? Why can't I have my own? I, I use it all the time. I go to a range all the time. Now you're making me, you're issuing me a weapon that I only get two or three times a year, and I'm, I'm going to have it over there. But, but I like my own. I'm really comfortable with my own. You know? And the answer is, this is how we guarantee compliance with the law of war. This is how we guarantee we don't have any illegal weapons. This is how we guarantee we don't have any illegal ammunition. You only get what we issue to you. You're not allowed to bring your own. When we had civilian employees who deployed with us in 91, they all wanted to have their own weapon. We said, no, you can't have your own weapon. And we're not issuing your weapons. We are taking care of you. You're in a rear area. And well, they weren't satisfied. Well, that's fine. You don't like that, then go home. They didn't want to lose their jobs. They were making a lot of money. And so they said, no, okay, if I can't have my own weapon, I can't have my own weapon. But they were fighting us on that because they felt they should have their own weapon. And, and I, I got to tell you, I was, I was probably a lawyer in the Army for 20-some years before I realized that that was a part of the law war program and part of how the United States guarantees that its people or does its best to guarantee that its people will comply with the law of war. Every weapon system, every type of ammunition that is developed in all of the services must be certified by the judge advocate general of the service before it can be put into the service, before it can be put into use. So if there's a new cannon or a new type of ammunition, or they're getting ready to buy a new type of small arms from a, from a different manufacturer, that all has to be certified, goes through a study and an analysis to like several lawyers and international law and operational law. And the judge advocate general, the three-star general, him or herself, has to personally certify in writing that that weapon qualifies under the Hague Conventions and is consistent with the law of war. Most lawyers in the army don't even know that. But there, there are things like that that are done institutionally and systemically to ensure compliance with the law of war. So interesting. We're speaking with General John Altenberg. We'll be right back. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C. And get $500 off with code HAPPY24. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. It's never too early to start exploring potential practice areas and building your network in the field. 
The Law Student Division provides students like you with resources and experiences aimed at helping them succeed in law school and prepare for what's next. Claim your full law student membership for just $25 by visiting ambar.org slash join. And we are back now with General John Altenberg, 28 years as a lawyer in the Army, former Deputy Judge Advocate General for the Department of the Army, presently of counsel at greenberg Troreg, and professorial lecturer in national security at George Washington. As you watch Russia's war with Ukraine, what do you think about the war from a military lawyer's perspective? That's an interesting question because a lot of people jumped right away to war crimes and genocide. And, and as a lawyer, my first reaction was, even though I'm, I'm no fan of the Russians, I'm no fan of uh, their, uh, their purported leader, uh, Putin, but the first thing I thought of as a lawyer was, you know, it'll depend on the facts. It'll depend on the circumstances. I mean, bombing or attacking an apartment building is not necessarily a war crime. You need to know what the facts are. Uh, if, in fact, there was a forward observer placed up there to spot, you know, uh, the Russians and where they are, or if there was a sniper up there, it would mean it might not be a war crime. So, yeah, so as a lawyer, you always want to look at all the facts because there are, there are things that seem on their face to be war crimes. And we're especially inclined to react that way emotionally when we don't like one side and like the other side. So we want to automatically default to, well, it must be a war crime. And, and, and I might even go so far as to say, that oh, it probably is a war crime. But the lawyer in me says, not necessarily. It depends on how that was being used. I mean, an attack on a hospital isn't necessarily automatically a war crime. It would depend on if the hospital was being misused by the enemy. You see, and and so so it's it's more complicated than that, and 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 some people don't like complication. You know, <laughs> they shouldn't be lawyers. <laughs> How did you gravitate toward becoming a lawyer for the army? I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I went to Vietnam so I could knock that obligation out of the way. I, I was drafted, and I just let let me do this, and then I can get on with my life. I was a college graduate, high school English teacher before I got drafted. And uh, um, a, a mentor of mine in, in the teaching department was, was praising me. And, and, and I was saying, you know, I, I still think about being a lawyer. And, and he said, then get the Army out of the way and be, be honest about it. Then decide whether you want to be a teacher or a lawyer. And he had such an influence on me that I wrote my draft board that night and said, I might not teach next year. I may go to law school. So if you want to draft me, draft me now. Well, you write a letter like that in December of 1967, you, you get a notice 30 days later. Well, come on in. You know, so anyway, I got drafted. Uh, that man, by the way, subsequently was the best man at our wedding and is a godfather of, of our oldest of five children. So he, he was a powerful force in my life. And uh, so I did my two years and I got out and I went to law school. I figured I, I wanted to do trial law. It seemed to be what I was attracted to. And uh, I was interviewing with the Democratic city solicitor and the Republican county prosecutor and had no interest in the military. I did my two years. See you later. I mean, it was that's all it meant to me at the time when I did it. I didn't bring anything back from Vietnam. I didn't want to bring any slant pocketed fatigues or, or nylon jungle boots or anything. I just, I'm done with that. I did that. 
In fact, I used to characterize my service as I can sit in any bar the rest of my life. And if somebody gives me flack about the length of my hair or my beard, I can tell them the pack sand I served. You know, that's what it meant to me. Didn't mean any more than that, but that was a lot, really. I, okay, I did my service. And I went and I listened to a JAG officer talk about we throw people in the courtroom and most of them swim. We, we, we just give it to you right away. You know, you'll be maybe six months in the service and you may be trying cases already. And that sounded attractive. And I went home and told my wife that. And she was like, we got married after I came back from Vietnam. That was not that was not her idea where our life was going to go. You know, I said, well, let's just see if I get in. So I applied and I got in and uh, I went to get three years of trial experience. Promised my father-in-law I'll be home in three years and we'll, we'll practice law, you know, within a few miles of home. And 28 years later, I retired uh, because I just really liked it. It was fascinating. You know, it was changing all the time. It was interesting. It was uh, the people that you work with, you know, and, you're, you're, you, and there's a service element to it also, but it, it's a dynamic, fascinating practice. I mean, it's just changing all the time. And it's, there, there's a lot going on. There's a lot. And, you know, different guys that I, that I came in with went into environmental law and others became labor law experts and some, you know, uh, Tried cases even 10 and 12 years. Some people get to try cases that long. I, for myself, it was seven or eight years. But then I I supervised, you know, the trial of cases for, for six more years as a senior lawyer in a, in a, in a large organization. So it's a, dyna- it's a dynamic practice. And, uh, and it's all over the world, you know. So uh, I ended up loving it. And it brought you to the point where you led thousands of attorneys. How do you lead thousands of attorneys? You know, lead, leading attorneys has been compared to herding cats. <laughs> I, I, I didn't find it that way. I, I was, I was empowered by it. I really, I really enjoyed it because I liked the training piece. Uh, I like developing ways to uh, help people be better lawyers. You know, and so I maybe it was the teacher in me that 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 liked that. But, but the military, you know, uh, is a, is a, essentially a leadership laboratory. You know, because you're always studying leadership because leadership is so intrinsic and so essential to to the military uh, mission. And so uh, I was just fortunate to have a couple of good bosses that uh, turned me on, so to speak. And uh, and I, I ended up liking it a lot. I became a big believer in systems. Uh, that if you develop systems, even as a, as a trial lawyer, I, I wanted to have a system for how I was going to cross-examine or how I was going to direct and, and everybody that I came into contact with that worked for me, I said, this is the system you will use. I had a folder system for how I broke the trial apart and wrote a trial book. I said, you will use this system for six months. After that, you can do whatever you want, but you will use my system for six months. And, and that, to me, is the advantage of the military is there is a structure there. And, and the structure has been around for a long time. We, we even have something that's called MDMC, military decision making, you know, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You got a four letter acronym for making decisions, you know, but it's a process. And once you're immersed in, you realize, well, it's it's not, it's not rocket science, that's for sure, but it really works. You know, it's a consideration of several courses of action and how you analyze them and how you reach a consensus on which course of action to follow. And it's, it's it's a structure that's that's useful in all kinds of different ways, and and there's so many, there's so many aspects. Now, some of that stuff gets overdone, and then you get the rigid automaton that doesn't know how to think really. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of 
you know, life's a life's all about balance. You know, it's not having one way or the other way. It's like there's, there's art and science, and and there's a, there are, there are some scientific aspects of of leadership, but there's there's an art to it too. So I say, well, you know, one person would describe this individual that we're going to talk about as a micromanager, just really, you know, it's it's crazy to work for him because he's always managing every little thing and driving me crazy. And then somebody else would say about the same person, oh, you know, he just sets high standards and he holds people accountable. Same person, two different perspectives. And, and whether you're a micromanager or whether you're a person that sets high standards and holds people accountable, that's art. Okay. You can talk science one way or there, but that's where leadership becomes art is getting the balance because it's the balance that determines whether you're really an effective leader. Everybody ought to have a little bit of a micromanager in them or else you're somebody that doesn't really give a darn. Nobody, and you don't set standards. And you don't hold people accountable and people don't know, people don't know which end is up. But uh, so, so, so anyway, balance is important in all these matters, you know, getting that, getting that just right. And that's, that, that, that takes, that takes experience. You know, you know what experience is? Experience is mistakes. Okay. That's what experience is. You know, not, not much experience is not making mistakes. And most of, most of our really, really, good experience or solid experience or, or essential experience is based on the mistakes that we made. And so it takes a little bit of luck to make those mistakes and not hurt an individual, okay, or not cause somebody else a loss of some kind. But those mistakes are essential to gaining experience. And then it, that experience informs judgment. And that's where you develop and where you really have something to say about how to lead. As we wrap up today, I will end with the broadest question of all. What advice do you have for law school students? Recognition first, that you don't know what you don't know, number one. Recognize that the important thing is to start working and to practice law, even if it's in an area you don't like or you think you'll never want to do. The important thing is to is to get out there and, and essentially make those mistakes, you know, figure out which end is up and how to practice. And and I usually tell a story about the person who at the age of 50 is a top bankruptcy lawyer in the country. And how did you become a bankruptcy lawyer? Well, you know, I thought when I got out of law school, I wanted to do national security law. But I went to a law firm and I said, I want to do national security law. And they, they picked me, but they said, the bankruptcy guy really needs some help this year, you know, so you're going to be his associate for a year. And the next thing I knew, I'd been doing it for six or seven years and I was really good at it. And here I now I'm at 50 and I'm one of the top bankruptcy lawyers in the country. And so there's lots of areas of law that we don't know about when we're in law school. We only know what we read. We only know what we see in movies or TV. You know, and, and most of that is ersatz. It's not really how the real practice of law is. So the point is to get out there and practice, just doing something, roll your sleeves up and and work at being a good lawyer and developing lawyer skills. And and you'll, and you'll probably slide into one area or another. And you'll look back when you're 35 or 40 and you'll say, wow, look at look at all those forks in the road. And I didn't even know they were forks when I when I chose one way or the other. That's, so so you be open, I guess, is what I'm saying. You know, be open to all possibilities. Don't necessarily think that what you think you want to do coming out of law school is what you'll end up doing. Because the practice of law is so varied and so interesting that uh, there's too much for any one of us to know when we're, when, we're, when we're doing three years of law school to really understand what's out there. General, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. 
Thanks much. Take care, Meg. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and on Twitter at ABA LSD. That's it for now. I'm Meg Steenberg. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.